Hi friends, welcome to the Trauma Tapes. I'm Dr. MC McDonald. I am a PhD trauma researcher and a life coach, and it's my goal in life to change the way that we define and understand and treat trauma. Here's why. Trauma is not actually a sign of weakness or disorder. It's a biological response born of strength. Without it, we would not survive. So I think the first step towards healing is being able to see this so that we can stop shaming ourselves for being human. I'm here with my sister, Elizabeth Meadows. Each week we read your letters and give you information and advice about how to understand and demystify your experiences and symptoms so that you can heal. We bring together my research with our lived experiences so that we can all better understand and cope with trauma. So pull up a chair, grab a coffee and join us. goodness that's new i know (laughs) (laughs) okay so we're recording and we know that zoom added a new feature where super creepy robot voice came in and came out of nowhere i felt like that was in my head (laughs) i couldn't tell if you could hear it too or if it was just me so i made a weird oh yeah it was loud (laughs) good to know if you're trying to record something on the sly on zoom i'm sure people do that right yeah exactly do you know that I like have burst out laughing yesterday because I have honestly always thought it was outer body experience. <laughs> like last week? Yeah. <laughs> I thought you just like misspoke. No, it's, it's been 50 years I've thought that it's been outer body, like an outer, like an alien. <laughs> Outer space. <laughs> oh my god, my face hurts already. Sorry. <laughs> oh god, I stand corrected. <laughs> How did that pass by for so long? I don't know. I guess I've never seen it like written. <laughs> oh, so stupid. That's funny. <laughs> yep. It sounds the same though. Outer body, outer body, outer body, outer body. I can see that totally. Yeah, I don't know. I but I pictured like. I, I don't know. There was an alien aspect to it for me. <laughs> I think I'm going to stick with it, actually. <laughs> yeah, just go with it. Make it its own Okay. Game. Okay. <laughs> okay, welcome to the <laughs> episode 20. This is going to be a casual episode. Um, this is episode 20. This is super exciting because we. I remember at the beginning, I feel like we're just rolling now and we're just going to keep going. But at the beginning, we were, it was such a big hurdle to do 10. I know. Here we are. 20 have passed by super fast and it's like that's super fun it is fun it's easy to do <clears throat> thank you for hanging with us people um also please subscribe and and rate if you can especially on itunes or, or the podcast app the, the apple thing because that helps us get seen a lot so yeah if that's not too much please yeah do that we're doing a Q&A episode this time we um we have our new website and it's getting new things added to it. So, so I don't actually know if we've ever talked about this, but after an episode, I always write a letter to the, have we ever talked about this? No. To the letter writer in addition to the episode that we did, because usually it actually kind of started because it was so hard for me to have these one-offs without like any further, because with a client, you can always circle back after you've been thinking about something. But since we don't circle back with people, it's just the one-off letter. I started writing letters kind of to make myself feel better (laughs) in a way, but they're also for the person who, you know, obviously wrote in. 
So those are always in the Instagram feed, but they're also now going to be on our new website um, with a whole bunch of other stuff. And it is the traumatapes.com. And that was built by our brother, Jake. The website is really cool. He um, does, he has a business called Snow Shack Sites where he builds websites for folks. So go check out the website, thetraumatapes.com. You can listen from there. You can um, submit your story and you can see all of the episodes and then all the notes we have about them. That gives us more space than, than the caption on Instagram. So we will probably be moving over there exclusively at some point. The letters are great. I think it's a, it's a really like, nice way to wrap it up because we, we have a tendency to go off on different tangents and it brings it back to the subject at hand. So thank you for writing those. No, it's fine. It's, it's great to like reflect. It helps me a lot. Um, but yeah, if you've, if we've talked about you on the, in your letter on the, on the podcast, there's also a letter. So go look if you missed that. Yeah. I think that's all the like administrative stuff, right? I think so. Yeah. You want to just jump into these questions? Yes. So we got questions from all sorts of places um, on Instagram and from people and yeah, so we're just going to jump into it. Okay. The first one is, uh, how do I feel uncomfortable slash sit in the pain without beating myself up? Okay. Good question. What do you think? What are your initial thoughts? For me, it's always the anticipation of the pain that's worse than the pain itself that I still or my tendency is to fight the pain or fight the feeling mm-hmm. and try and deny it and push it away. Yeah. And when I am able to finally let it kind of wash over me, mm-hmm. it never lasts as long as I think it's going to. It's a, and it always feels like this wonderful release mm-hmm. afterwards. Yeah. But my tendency is still to be like, oh, no, 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 I'm not, you know, I'm not going to do this. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And then, you know, yeah, Yeah. but it always feels better afterwards. And it's always shorter than I think it's going to be, if that makes any sense. Totally, totally. Because you're, I mean, we, I think we kind of forget that emotions are biological experiences and biological experiences are by nature like very temporary, you know? And so if you do just kind of sit down and let it roll through you, it will move a lot faster than if you try to engage it in some sort of war, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We battle with ourselves and that's where, you know, we beat ourselves up. I also think, so there's two other things here. One, we beat ourselves up because we have the wrong frame around all of this, which is that we have to arrive at healed. And I think if we can let go of that framing, then this becomes a lot easier because then you start to be able to do the second thing, which is to greet the emotion as like, oh, you're here again. Okay, we're here. Which is not, you know, that can be charged in all sorts of ways. Like, oh, this joyful feeling is here again. I'm glad about it. Or, oh, this sadness is still here. And that's kind of depleting. But it's, you stop beating yourself up when you let go of the frame that like, this means I am doing this wrong, or I have not healed, or I am back where I started, or like, there's so much shame in that. And we're setting ourselves up for failure because that's just not what healing looks like. Right. It's not an arrival point. It's a process and it goes on and on and on and on. And it, like, I think if you think about your other memories, like an integrated memory doesn't go away. An integrated memory becomes something you can like intervene on and think about, you know what I mean? 
Yeah. But you, you, we have this wrong idea. I always try to think about this Rumi poem that that I'll read really quickly because it helps me so much. It's called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Wow. Which I, 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 love I, I was just thinking the other day that I need to get that and like frame it or something so I can look at it all the time because it's like, okay, you're here. Cool. Like what, what do you have to, to offer me? You know what I mean? What is the purpose right. of this emotion rather than like, oh damn, why are you here again? You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's kind of outrageous to ask the question of why are you here again? You know, I mean, right. it, that would be like, if some, if, if the memory is integrated or the experience is integrated to question why it's here again, would be like, you know, cutting off a limb. Yeah, like exactly. it's part of you. Right. Right. Yeah. I think, like, I think you're right about the way we frame it. And the thing, you know, it's, it's like if, if every time your dog Sadie comes into the room, if you were like, why are you here again? Why are you here again? Sometimes you you're excited when she comes bounding into the room. Sometimes you're probably irritated. It's, you would never be like, what, why are you here? You know, <laughs> right, right, right. Sometimes it's to bring you a dirty tennis ball. Sometimes it's, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it's just, it's kind of the wrong question. So beating yourself up is just kind of the wrong, just let that go, you know? Yeah. Don't think about it. Just feel it. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's the part that causes the suffering, not the feeling. Right. You can withstand the feeling you withstood the trauma. It's right. It's not going to drown you, you know? Right. Okay. Ready for question number two? Yes. Can you break down tiny little joys and how it helps so it doesn't just feel like another thing to do? Well, that's a good one. <laughs> it is a good one. What do you think about that? Um, I think it's, well, I, I get that another thing to do because I've, I, you know, there's so many things out there that are helpful, but feel like, like the gratitude journal or meditating every day or the, I mean, those are just things for me that are journaling that just feel like, Oh God, I know I should be doing this, but I don't want to, yeah. <laughs> you know? So I, I understand the, um, the question and, and the, that it might feel like a burden. Um, for me, it's just, it, it's, it's kind of reframing. It's okay. Like getting in touch with how, something makes me feel and, and just taking a second and appreciating that. Mm -hmm. So it feels like less of a task because it's something that's already out there. It's just how I think about it in the moment or how I recognize it. Yep. What do um, you think? Yeah. I mean, I think two things, one, this is a very, like, this is going to sound very un unsympathetic. Um, I don't really care if it feels like another thing to do, do it anyway. Right. <laughs> You're right. Why? Because I think that one of the reasons why we think like, oh, this is the thing on my to-do list that I can jettison because I'm too busy. The reason we do that is because we under um, emphasize the importance of mental health for physical health. Yeah. And so it's like, if you do this anyway, I mean, what you're doing when you're engaging in tiny little joys is you are reprioritizing your brain function for better coping in all ways for better, like it's for stress reduction. It's for 
being able to connect to your loved ones more, for being able to know yourself, for being able to notice all of the things in the world. Like it's, it's like, if someone said, you know, I don't really have time, I'm going to stop brushing my teeth. It's like, well, no, <laughs> right? Not, like you can't do that. You can't, you can't do that. It's unhealthy for you. It's unhealthy to not do this. You know what I mean? And yeah. I also think, so I think like the resistance in other words, like is because we, we just don't prioritize our mental health and we need to, because our mental health, I mean, if you can't do it for the sake of mental health on its own, our mental health is connected to our physical health. So if you want to reduce inflammation, if you want to be able to lower cortisol and therefore lose weight, you have to be connecting to the part of your brain. That's not the terror or worry part. It's the hope part. And that's what yeah. the joy the exercise does. It, it turns on the hope circuit. And it's just opening yourself up to it because whatever the tiny little joy is, is happening anyway. And that's the thing. Like, I think when you make it a practice, like it might feel at the beginning, like frustrating to like add another thing. And like, I get that because every time I've been, someone has said, well, you need to add this kind of thing. I'm like, oh, geez, you know, I am super over, you know, tasking yourself. Yeah. Like over scheduled, you know what I mean? Yeah. Someone says like, okay, well, the thing you need to do about your stress that you are overscheduled is add something else to your schedule. I'm like, Right. So I totally get that. But I also think that this will help you with the stress. And the more you do it, the easier it is because it just is an opening, as you said. Like you just start to notice and it becomes second nature and natural. And then you don't have to try. You're doing exactly, which is, and that's the beautiful thing because it changes the way you see the world, you know? Right. It changes your perception. Yeah. And these tiny things then, like I think sometimes we're looking for like the, give me the quick fix that helps me in my relationship or the way that I relate to people at work or whatever it is you're trying to work on. And these little things, because they change the way you see the world, they change the way you're in the world. And then they change the way you relate to everything. Right. So sometimes it's not like a targeted, like, here's the one thing you can do to make sure that you never have an argument with your partner or whatever. It's like, here's the thing you can do to change the way you are in the world. Questions all over your life. Absolutely. Okay. Question number three. So let's say a friend comes to me for relationship advice. I give said advice. Now, why is it that I would give them advice, but I can't seem to follow it myself? This is a great one. What do you think? That's a great question because I think we're harder on ourselves than we are on anyone else in our lives. I think that's, they talked about, I'm, I should have the information. I'm sorry, but the book, um, what's the book with the two sisters that, What's that? Burnout. Burnout. Yeah. Didn't they talk about kind of like the, they asked you to describe like the gremlin in your head yes. in a way that you're your own self-critic? Yeah, like, totally. Yeah. They called it the mad woman in the attic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because the mad woman in the attic won't let you follow the good advice. Right. <laughs> you're giving her way too much airtime. <laughs> yeah. Tell her to be quiet. Here's a drink. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, Yeah. I mean, I think this is like at the heart of why we talk so much about self-compassion because it is way easier to feel compassion for other people um, than it is to feel compassion for ourselves. And so we really have to like up that practice if we want to be able to see our own value and worth enough to be able to make changes like that in our lives. Cause we see our friends value and worth. That's very easy. 
people that mm-hmm. we love, we're just like, oh my God, of course, you know, it's, it's, it's a given, but when it comes to ourselves, we don't see ourselves in that light. And so then we can't, we can't take that advice. It's also way yeah. easier to overthink your own problem and I think miss some of the like nuance. So sometimes when we give people relationship advice, it's like, it's because their, their situation seems very 2D to us and to them it's 3D, you know? When we're in the situation ourselves, you see all of the sides of it. And so it's like you, it's, it becomes a lot harder to kind of reduce to simple advice. Does that make sense? Yeah. When you're in the situation yourself, you're, you are bringing your own shit into it also. And it's, um, so it's clouding the decisions that you're making or potentially clouding the decisions that you're making. Right. Whereas from the outside, it can be like, why the heck does this person keep doing this? You know? Right. It's a different lens. Totally. And there's actually kind of an interesting, like, I don't know if uh, this is, I think not intentional, but like there, there's advice in this question, which is be a better friend to yourself. Yeah. You know, we talk so much about the way I've said this a bunch of times, like we've talked so we talk so much about the way that we are, whether we are good friends and partners to other people, but we are often in abusive relationships with ourselves because we're beating the crap out of ourselves and stewing in shame and hatred and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, well, part of that requires a lot of work, but part of it is about like, I'm, I'm going to commit to stop doing that. You know what I mean? Right. Right. I'm going to be nice. And I think that, that, oh, sorry. No, that's it. Yeah. Um, I think the, the mad woman in the attic is such a great um, visual of, of, you know, that, and like, because of that book burnout, um, like I now know that for myself, like I, there's, there's a very specific formula to shut up the mad woman in the attic and, you know, and that's what I took away from that book, which was hugely, hugely helpful to figure that out. And I haven't been able to do that for the past couple of days. I was sharing with Mac earlier and I, the mad woman is like, you know, in rare form right now. So like, I just have to do, for me, it's like exercise. There's just 10 minutes of exercise to shut that mad woman up. And it's, I don't even do it for the exercise anymore or the benefits or and I do it to shut the mad woman up, <laughs> Yeah, you know? I'm picturing the great gardens with the, with the flags. Oh yeah. 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 The 4th of July thing. Um, and it doesn't have to be exercise. It could be laughing. It can be, you know, you just find whatever it is for you. Yeah. That, that shuts that person up because that person is, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just, can I ask you about, um, so the formula for you is just 10 minutes of exercise. That's it. Does that have to be high yeah. or just walking? Like what, what works for you? I, um, I, you know, ironically, I've never been a high intensity exercise kind of person, but I am now. And you know, it's, um, yeah. it's getting my heart rate up. So yes. whatever that involves, and it's literally 10 minutes and that's it. Yeah. And then I'm like at peace. Yeah. See, that's huge. I know. I know. And I love, there's a couple of things about that one. Like you took the advice from the book and then you were like, okay, let me apply this to me and see what works for me because they gave tons of, by the way, we've talked about this a lot, but go read that book because it's great. Tons of practical advice. Um, But you were able to be like, okay, here, out of all the things that they're suggesting, I'm going to try a bunch of things out. I'm going to see the time that works for me. I'm going to pick the exercise that works for me. And you made it your own. Right which is huge because people are right. You're going to need, some people are going to need more than that. Some people are going to need less than that. Some people are going to need an activity that's not exercise. Some people are going to need 
a not high intensity exercise for 90 minutes. You know what I mean? Like it just, you have to practice. You do have to practice and you have to be willing to pivot too. Cause I, just because that works for me now, doesn't mean that's going to work for me totally. a month from now. Right. You know? And I think the other thing is that you have the awareness that when the like mad woman takes over, you now are in the observer role. So you can see like, Oh, the mad woman is here. She's taken over my narrative. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, instead of being like, God, I feel terrible and everyone hates me. And I don't know why you don't, you have insight now. So again, it's yeah. not about like you arrive at this point where the mad woman doesn't exist. You relate differently to the mad woman because you're aware that she's there and what she does. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. What do you like? I, I'm thinking of those. Um, <laughs> do you remember those flowers in the attic books? They were terrible books. Oh. I remember them because they were at the Longmeadow Community Market and they were always like at the checkout and they were paperbacks and they were like black covers and there was a series of them and they were really dark. And, you know, I was always kind of drawn to them as a kid and mom was like, don't, you know, that's bad. Like, stop it. But flowers in the attic is the, is the, um, one of the titles. And it, it, it makes me think of the mad woman, like darkness in the attic. Yeah. Okay. You know? it's, it's, I'm looking it up now. VC Andrews or something is the. Yeah. VC Andrews. Yep. Creepy. It's one of those things that like you're, you're young. So that stuff just gets imprinted and you like, it never goes oh away. God, it's been banned. Oh, see, there you go. Mom was right. It was bad. <laughs> Holy hell. It's been, it's been flagged for depictions of child abuse and incest. Yeah, it was dark stuff, but I, I specifically remember the display in the market. Think, yeah, it's dark. It's a dark, yeah. Right? Yeah, we can put this on the Instagram. It's creepy as hell. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not, now I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I have to go read this. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> the, the, the mad woman in the attic, like I was, can I just say one tiny like critical thing about this? Sure. Can we not pick a hysterical woman? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I was like, guys. <laughs> I know. Cause that's so not who they are too. Right. And I mean, they're picking, she's, this is a character from a Virginia Woolf novel. I can't remember which one, but it's, it's like a trope, but it's a trope because we view women as hysterical, which is one of the right. reasons why we misunderstand trauma because trauma begins in hysteria. And so this is why I have an extra stake in this it's not just a feminist issue. It's like a bad science issue. You know, it's like, can we not pick a hysterical woman? <laughs> I know. Just picture like a gremlin or like yeah. a Tasmanian devil or something. Right. Totally. Like, but yeah. personifying it is really helpful because then you can relate to it. But I have a pink yeah. robot. That's what I always think of as my anxiety. A pink robot? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's like a frantic little like spastic robot that's like misfunctioning misfiring or whatever and it like it, it lives in the closet and it flings open the closet door and it like interrupts and i'm like my i'm always like can you not like <laughs> or those um or those pen things that you put on top of the pencil that had like the yeah. fur that's st- like yeah the little stood troll. up that used to like rub the yeah, yeah trolls exactly uh-huh. yep <laughs> we're getting weird i like this this one i know okay okay this speaking of trolls yeah. Okay. Um, can you talk more about the Mohawk of self-awareness? Yes. I'm writing about this right now. This is the thing that's going to help us understand exactly why we can't say that we like attract bad people into our lives. Okay. 
because I hate that. And I can't quite figure out how to like make a stand against this, but I think it's the Mohawk of self-awareness. Okay. So think about your Mohawk of self-awareness. Like, I love that it's like a little punk rock because I think it's like perfect for what it actually is. So you have, we all have like a pink Mohawk that kind of runs down the center of our brain and it runs from the, so this is a brain structure. It's called the midline and it runs from behind the eyes all the way to the brainstem. All the parts of our brain that are associated with knowing ourselves run down this midline. You can think of like the pink Mohawk as the most like self-assured, rebellious little like punk rock teenager. Um, Like she knows where she is. That's the posterior cingulate that gives us a sense of where we are. She knows what kind of music and art she loves. That's the, the parietal lobes like integrate sense data into emotions. She knows what she feels. The insula brings messages from perception to the emotion center. So that's how you know how you perceive and what she thinks about how she feels. So the interior coordinates emotions and thinking, and then also what she's going to do about it. The medial prefrontal cortex is critical in decision-making. So those are all the parts of the the Mohawk of self-awareness. And you can see how in different ways, all of those parts are connected to knowing yourself, being able to make a decision, and then being able to execute that decision. And researchers, the reason we know about this is because we found, researchers found that in non-traumatized people, the Mohawk of self-awareness is lit up almost all the time. In traumatized people, on the other hand, not. And if you have chronic PTSD, there's almost no activity whatsoever. And so what that means is that over time, trauma has made you disconnected from knowing yourself, disconnected from yourself. And so that's, and okay, so why, like, why would we ever become that way? It's because when you're overwhelmed constantly, your brain shuts down the parts of the brain that register and detail the horrible experiences. So if you can't escape, the best way to survive is to feel less and to notice, but not bring the noticing into yourself, if that makes sense. So it's kind of like a brilliant, but also heartbreaking response and it can save you in the moment, but it can lead to further like victimization because you also become detached from knowing when something is a red flag, when someone is hurting you or abusing you because you're not registering that and filing it away the way you would if you didn't have trauma. So for a super long time, people have been trying to figure out why people who have trauma repeat it especially relationship trauma. Why would you get out of one abusive relationship dynamic and get right back into another? Like, what is the deal? We couldn't figure that out. And it's because, I think it's because primarily of this, you become disconnected from yourself. And so you don't see yourself as a self. So how could you possibly regard yourself as a self that's worthy of a different kind of behavior? So you lose like judgment. Yes. Sound decision-making. You can make decisions, but not about yourself. Okay. That you could be very productive, like at work and you can like, do you still have access to the parts of your brain that are responsible for like rational activity and thought in general, but not in relation to yourself. You're not like completely dysfunctional by any means, but you stop, you you stop counting in your brain schema to yourself. And you talked about this with one of the, the letter writers, because when you first started talking about it, I thought, okay, so can't what shouldn't you be able to if you are starting to hear the jaws music you know like mom used to say like if you are like okay this is happening again i'm feeling like sick to my stomach um 
even if you can't rationally know what's going on, could you be able to recognize that it might not be a good situation? But I remember you saying to a letter writer that the Jaws music is the norm. It doesn't even play. Right. Like you don't hear it. Right. You, you wow. Yeah. You're, you're like, and it's, um, if you've ever had like a dissociative experience, it changes your perception. And so you will, um, this, this happens like if you've ever fainted, you don't have to have like, have had a dissociative experience in terms of trauma, you, you get tunnel vision and your and your the auditory field gets very dampened. It's almost like you're underwater. Mm-hmm. And that is what someone who's had chronic trauma is like chronically feeling in the presence of danger. It's like muted. You don't hear it. It doesn't register. You don't connect with your body. You feel less pain. Like people who've had a lot of trauma have a much higher threshold for pain because they don't, the part of the brain that, that connects the experience of pain with self is disconnected. Wow. It's not that you don't have pain. It's that you don't relate to it as a self. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. That certainly takes all the, the guilt and shame and blame out of it. Totally. It's a, it's, it's a, first of all, it's a biological thing that you don't have control over until you have awareness about it. And second, it comes about because it's trying to save you. Right. Like if you're in a terrible situation, you can't get out. What a cool thing. Check out and be back here. Yeah. That's, that's, I think that's, I think that's really brilliant. And then the, the other thing to kind of add potential confusion and insult to injury here is that when you've had an unintegrated experience, when you've had something that you can't make sense out of, we have a, a, a compulsion to repeat it because the brain is trying to put it away and understand it. And so it will put you in the situation again. And then you're like, so you get the repetition compulsion mixed with this inability to know yourself as a self and you're repeating, 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 and not feeling people who have trauma have are, are very disconnected from their bodies. And one of the best things to do is to figure out ways to get back in touch with your physical sense of self. So this right. movement practice can be really helpful too. And you, they repeat the pattern in order to understand it or to try to understand it. To master it, meaning like either understand it or to give yourself an opportunity to act differently. The wow. craziest example, which I went back and looked at again, because Bessel van der Kolk talks about this a lot. It was a Vietnam vet and he had on the 5th of July at six in the morning, gotten himself involved in a shootout with the police by going into a convenience store and having like a gun in his pocket, but it was just his finger and trying to like, you know, hold up the joint, but then didn't steal anything. Like nothing was making sense. And he did it on July 5th at 6.30 in the morning, five consecutive years in a row. Oh my God. And so they kept sending him to jail. And then finally someone was like, he needs help. Yeah. Let's send him to a, a you know a, a psychiatrist or psychologist, and so they sent him to Bessel van der Kolk, who was just happened to be the the doctor at the time, and he was like, "Hey man, like what happened on July fifth? <laughs> you know, like what what are you doing?" And um, clearly seeing that he was repeating something, obviously, right? He's literally repeating this inexplicable. This was not a person who would find himself in a shootout with the police otherwise. No criminal behavior whatsoever. Like nothing makes sense. What is going on? 
And the, the clinical temptation is just to be like, well, this guy is psychotic or delusional or like they should just dismiss it. You know what I mean? But Bessel van der Kolk was like, what is actually happening? And it turned out that on July 4th, there was a shoot, there was a firefight and he and only one person survived from his battalion. And they had spent this intense night together trying to stay alive. And then at 6.30 in the morning, you know, the sun comes up. It's like triumph. They've survived. His friend gets hit by a random, one last random thing and dies in his arms at 6.30 in the morning on July 5th. Oh, my God. Because of the trauma, had no memory whatsoever of the event. So we knew it happened because everyone, you know, because there's details about that stuff that other people know, but he didn't have any memory of it. So in the absence of an integrated memory, the brain is just like, let's do weird shit until we get integration. And right. it's, it's, it can look really like, why would you do that? It's not rational. You know what I mean? Right. But it is a, this is very well documented it is, and it's a compulsion. It's not something you have. Freud called it like fate destiny. And he said it was a demonic force. Like he's like, this is something that comes from somewhere else. That's making these people do these things. It's wild. That's crazy. Yeah. Not crazy. That's the wrong word. That's fascinating. No, it's crazy in the sense of like, that's, it's wild. It's like, that's. Yeah. Okay. Traumatic memories. Why are they so constant in the beginning? Is it integration when they become less constant? How should you deal with them when they are happening? Okay. Yes. Excellent question. Um, Traumatic (laughs) memories are, well, what do you think? First of all, I'm very curious about this because like for me, you know, and you and I have talked about this, the, the, the hospital images of mom and dad, seeing them in the hospital, seeing them sick, seeing them in a place where we had never seen them were, those were haunting, haunting memories in the beginning. And, um, it, you know, it seemed like they were coming up all the time and hard to manage and hard to live with. And, um, I don't know, over time, they've become less and less, you know, I, I used to think that, or I used to say, like, they took up a big part of my brain, and now they're a smaller part, but I don't know the, the mechanism behind that, or it, it was very, very difficult in the moment to um, deal with them. So I, I'm curious to hear what you say. Can you, can I ask a question? Because I think it's a sure. good, like example. Can you explain like what, how they felt different than other memories? How they felt different? Um, or how you experienced them differently than other memories? Well, they were so, uh, you know, out of the norm that they were shocking. And that, um, I mean, I can still go back there and, and seeing both of them in that situation was so um, jarring you know, that it, I didn't have any, anything to compare it to. It was nature of the memory when it comes in, what is it like? Oh, it's like a, like a gunshot. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like a flash. It's like a, it's like a, um, I don't know, like a fast moving, um, assault. Yeah. But totally like visual memory, right? Like, yeah. And seem to come out of nowhere. Like, you know, you'd be like doing the dishes and like, you'd get these flashes. Yeah. And they're so like, I remember speaking to someone who had gone through a similar situation at work. um, And, you know, he was just incapacitated by these visions. And 
I remember telling him like, they'll, they'll get less, they'll get smaller. I promise. But it felt like such a disservice in the time to remember those things instead of the whole of the person that was no longer there. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Totally. And then you're like, is this all this is ever going to be? Is this all I'm going to be able to remember is this part? Yeah. Yeah. Haunting, like nightmarish. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really terrible. Yeah. Okay. Awesome descriptions. Cause this is exactly, this is, I think it's, thank you for describing it that way. I know it's hard, but like, this is the center of PTSD is our relationship to, to not even the event that happened, but how we relate to the event. And so the traumatic memory is at the absolute center of traumatic experience. If we can integrate the memory, then we have healing. Um, and so, but the reason that they are so vivid is because, so when you have, there's a huge spectrum, right? So when you have an incredibly overwhelming experience, you either have like this extreme forgetting where you like actually don't you, and I actually have some of those, there's like empty memories of those times, especially like with mom where like, I don't, I know that things happened because we have this narrative that things happen, but I have no memory of them. It's empty. okay. I know I was there, but it's like, it. so there's that, that extreme, that extreme of like forgetting. And then the extreme of retention where the memory becomes like, I always think of it for some reason as this like circular, like marble where it's just like this completely intact scene and it comes like flooding into your visual field and you just like, it just like enacts itself. Like a movie just started in front of your face. Yeah. You're trying to like read something or like drive or like talk to somebody or, and you're like, what the hell? Like, right. I didn't push play. I didn't start this movie. Why is this happening? And it's so vivid and intact. That's the other extreme. The reason that that happens is because, is because of the way that the brain is functioning when the traumatic event happens. So normally when we have all systems running, you have a set of, of processes in your brain that are designed to consolidate the memory and put it away. And when those systems are offline, because they're supposed to be offline, because you've got overwhelmed. And so all of your energy stores are going to dealing with the threat in the moment. Um, you don't get the same kind of consolidation of memory. Um, but it's, so you, you can think of it as like a file folder and the file folder is supposed to have three things in order for it to be an integrated memory, a narrative, some emotional content and a, a meaning attached to it. And when, and that requires a lot of energy and a lot of little like workers in your brain. And when they're not focused on that, because they're taken up doing something else, you get a corrupted memory file. And so the corrupted memory file poses a problem for the structure of the brain because it's like, this one does not look like this other thing. How can I get it to do this? And so it will just push it forward into your conscious awareness over and over and over again until you are able to put, uh, put the missing pieces together and organize the file. So the way you can deal with them, and interestingly, like we have known that that's the case since like 1880. Wow. Before we knew anything about, right. We didn't start scanning brains until the early nineties and we still don't really know what those scans mean in a lot of cases. So in 1880, Genet, Pierre Genet um, wrote that, that this is what happens. This is what's kind of inherent about traumatic experience is that um, when a person remembers what a person remembers depends on their mental state. 
once an event or a particular bit of information is integrated into existing mental schemes, it will no longer be available as a separate immutable entity, but be distorted both by associated experiences and by the emotional state at the time of recall. So until a memory gets put in with all your other files, it's this immutable entity that stays intact and you just re-experience it. And so I would argue that we should actually like use different language and not call these memories at all because they're so different than our memories. It's an instance of reliving, not of remembering. Here's an example though, too. This is, um, and they've done tons of studies on this. It's hard to study trauma because you can't traumatize people. So you have to grab people who have just been traumatized, which is a little heartbreaking, but um, in a bunch of uh, studies, so there's one study where they took um, a bunch of witnesses to a murder and they asked for their, they, you know, what did you just see? So it's not even a memory yet. It just happened. And the person explains what it, what, what they just saw. And we know that our memories are for the most part, pretty unreliable. But in the case of trauma, um, five months later, all of the people that were interviewed had the exact same memory. They said the exact same things. They used the exact same language. It was a totally intact, like accurate, persistent memory. Okay. So we are remembering differently when we have a traumatic experience. So what do you do about that? And there's been studies about this too. You talk about it. Our impulse is to shut it away and to like not do that, you know, because we want to, we want it to go away and it's intruding into our lives. And so we like close our eyes and we don't talk about them. We try to make them go away and they can feel like we are, they can make us feel like we're losing our minds. So we don't want to share that with other people. But if we talk about it, we are reconnecting the parts of the brain that were not online in the moment of trauma. And it makes it more likely that the memory can become integrated and filed away. Talk about the moments, talk about the experience. Talk about the, the memory that is coming forward in detail. And they've done research on that by, by, again, grabbing people in the emergency room who've just been through a traumatic event and, and making them narrate what just happened over and over and over again. And then the control group doesn't narrate at all. And the, the people who don't narrate are, are like, it's, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, like 80% more likely to develop PTSD than the group who, who narrated it. Wow. Yeah. So we, with all of the the focus of like, I I'm, I'm super into, you know, adjunctive therapies and, and doing yoga and somatic movement and, and, you know, taking weird drugs to see what happens and all that, like, <laughs> that's great. But we, we will always need to talk about trauma like that, that piece never is never going to go away because our psychology is structured narratively. And so if you don't have a narrative to, to help integrate the memory, it will stay unintegrated and it will keep pushing forward. Is there a point where you can do damage if you talk about it too much? Like if it's, if you keep revisiting it, that's a kind of a like, yes and no, it depends on the, on the way you're doing it. Right. So we've talked a lot about prolonged exposure therapy, and I think that's a good example for how to do it wrong. Because if you're like, if, if you come to me and you say like, Hey, I'm having these like flashbulb memories of like mom in the hospital room or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, let me get a notebook out. Tell me exactly what happened. You just said this, hold on, say this other thing again. Wait, you just flipped up. Was the, was the blanket blue or red, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, and I like just shoot things back at you and make you relive and relive and relive. That can be traumatizing. 
Okay. Talk to someone who is attuned to you and who can help you feel and bear some of that overwhelm that you're feeling as you're reliving it. You can, that can be healing. It depends essentially. Okay. But the talking has to happen. I think if that's interesting, if you relive in terms of your own, I like, cause I think, cause I know you've said a couple of times that they told you at that thing, you have to stop revisiting. You have to stop like pulling the wound, picking the scab, right? We end up becoming like very strangely related to our intrusive thoughts when we engage in battle with them. And that can be really unhelpful. Right. But talking with a therapist or someone you trust and who's attuned to you, that's a different thing. Yeah. And I I think there's also the the way from the mind-body connection when they said, you know, limit the times you revisit a traumatic event. That's, there's no narrative there. You're just reliving. Yeah. You're reliving it. You know, there was, um, yeah. Right. Narrative or writing about it or talking about it. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I was going to ask you, um, I, I just saw, and this was depicted in a television show that's, um, in a therapeutic situation, the patient was, um, not, dealing with grief. And um, the therapist said to the patient, take me back to the day that it happened, Mm. that her son had committed suicide. So take me back to the day that it happened. And at the time I thought like, is that the right thing to do? Is that the wrong thing to do? You know, but in the, the way you just explained it in that situation, that helps create the narrative around it or helps. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause like, I think another way to, to get at it is that when the telling becomes traumatic, it stops being telling, you know? So right. like if you're so activated when you're talking about something that you are having a, a, a very extreme somatic experience and you can't even concentrate to finish telling that no work is going to get done because you're simply reliving. And it's the clinician's job to be able to like, see that. Right. And help you co-regulate so that you can come back down and then, and then gradually go back into the memory as, as they see fit. But that's right. why it's so helpful to do it with a professional, because I think when we do it ourselves, we're, because we, we are so power through that we think like, I'll just, I just, if I just sit here and think about this, I'll figure it out. And it's like, no, that's not, you're just ruminating. You're not adding any narrative to that. You're not doing any integrative work. It's just, you're just picking the scab, you know? Yeah. I I don't know if this is related or not, but it makes me think a little bit about, um, I specifically remember um, September 11th after September 11th happened. And, you know, they, there was probably 48 hours of them showing those towers coming down over and over and over again. And I remember that they specifically came out and said, we're not going to show this footage anymore. This is, and I remember watching it, you know, over and over and everyone, the whole world was watching it over and over and over again. Yep. That like makes me think of what you're talking about, that that's just the, flashing those images mm-hmm. instead of, you know, being able to say like, where were you on that day? And what did, what were you feeling? And, and you know, what did you experience? And, and tell me about, you know, yeah. does that make sense? So th- that's kind of a, okay. Yeah. There was Dan Tomasulo, who I love, who works in, um, positive psychology and trauma. Um, he, and I have taken this very seriously and I found it to be really helpful. He was like, stop watching the news, stop scrolling, 
give yourself 15 minutes a, a, a day, listen to the news and that's it. That's all you need. Yeah. Yeah. Because you are creating a stress cycle, essentially, right? Right. Trauma right. and stress, I think, like, we don't say this enough, are related, right? Like, trauma activates the stress response system. So, like, that's the reason why I was talking about stress when we're talking about trauma. And when you're, when you give yourself chronic stress, that will eventually tip into some kind of overwhelm, you know? Yeah. You're dysregulated. And I think we have a tendency to, like, doom scroll because we feel like we're doing something or we need to know all the things. And I have to watch this thing over and over and over again and listen to this 911 call or whatever the hell. And it's like, actually, no, not necessary. It's dysregulated and it's not helpful. Okay. That's helpful. Thank you. It's a, yeah, that's a lot of info. Memory is like, yeah, it's the center of this whole thing. Uh, Is there an anger expression of trauma? I know a lot of us under express, but I feel some people over express it. 100%. Um, Yes. This um, underexpression happens when you dampen your affect. So like the result of over, so overwhelm can go in one of two directions. You, this is fight or flight, right? You either check out or you engage and battle. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, I don't know how the, I don't know what the numbers are or what any, if anyone's even done numbers, but some people tip into fight and they become really aggressive and irritable chronically. And they are like that in any, you know, kind of situation where there's an, um, some kind of stimulus that feels overwhelming in that similar way. I kind of hate to do The reason I'm like hesitating is that I hate to do this because it's a stereotype, but you see this a lot when you have someone who's been like in the police force or in the military, who's dealing with chronic trauma and they're trying to just kind of sit down at dinner or lunch and something happens or there's a loud noise and they like fly into irritability or rage mm-hmm. instead of um, instead of checking out. It's the same mechanism, just a different symptom displayed in a different way. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, totally. It's a it's good also, question. It's also true and like depression can can express itself as rage instead of like dampened affect. Yeah. And irritability, which I think is less often talked about. It's not in the Zoloft commercials with the like blob, you know, who's feeling blobby. You don't have a rage blob, but it's. <laughs> but the blob it's, gets mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> blob gets pissy. Yep. <laughs> totally. But yeah, no, that's it. It's again. And again, like this is one of the reasons that trauma has been so misunderstood is because the it's the same central stuff that's happening. I'm sure I like just people who've been listening are just like, okay, she has, she knows three things and she just keeps repeating them. Stop um, it. But it's, it's the same like thing, but it can come out in a thousand different ways because the adaptation is so brilliant that it will find different outlets. Yeah. Depending on the situation and the person and, and what will be seen. And the, the symptoms of PTSD have shifted over time and in different cultures based on what's going on, which is cool. Yeah. It's going to continue happening, you know? I definitely do that. I, I, I have a tendency to lash out if I'm feeling. Instead of disconnect? Yeah. Have you ever had a dissociative thing? Do you know? Have you like an outer body experience? <laughs> <laughs> I've had several outer body experiences. If that's the same thing, then Yes. <laughs> has been abducted by aliens more than once. <laughs> He's admitted it. No, I, I think that's how I like, I I'm able to recognize what I'm doing is that I like all of a sudden I'm 
become irrationally angry at, you know, at whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the gluten thing that we talk about in the family. Like, you know, sometimes when you're like accidentally gluten, we have celiac disease, like you want to kill somebody. <laughs> and you're like, what is this about? I don't usually right. have level of anger. Yeah. Right. Right. I much more check out. That's funny that we're. Oh, you are? Oh, totally. Yeah. And I get the whole like tunnel vision. I can't hear anything. I'm literally like back here. I can like, I know that like percent that reality is happening, but I'm not. And it, my mind goes blank. I have no idea what's happening. I can't think straight. I don't know what we were talking about. It's really disorienting. They're both valid. Like it's a, it's, they're both valid adaptations. And if you think about them, like fight is really helpful and flight is really helpful too. What's happening is your brain is like, Hey, we need something else. This isn't going to work. Yeah. So it just flips you into some other adaptation. I think that's, that's funny. Cause I think mom was like fight. Yeah. For sure. And dad was probably flight. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Right. Yeah. That's super interesting. She was definitely fight. Um, okay. Next question. Does trauma make us funny? Do you guys ever just laugh at how fucked up things have been? And is that healing? I've been curious if a lot of famous artists or composers in history had trauma. Okay. I'm going to say a general statement that I, you could probably cancel me for. Everyone who's interesting has had trauma. Every Ooh, artist like that. who in the, in, in, in the world, anyone who's saying anything or expressing anything has had trauma. Bold statement there, but I'm sticking with it. I like it. I like it. You should. Because I think it's, I really think it's true. I, I remember this is such a random example, but um, there was like a writer's strike in New York um, at a certain point I when I lived in New York, I can't remember when this was. And Conan, all the like shows, Conan O'Brien, for example, they didn't have writers. And so he had to do something different. And so you just saw Conan being Conan on, on TV because there was no, there was no writing team. Um, and then he did a documentary, I think about this time, cause he went on tour or whatever. He's a dark dude, like really dark. You should watch that documentary. I got okay. of it. It's really good. He's really dark. Um, and I think most people who are really funny are really dark. Yeah. And I think that's because when you get, when you meet the, the facet of the universe that trauma introduces you to the, one of the only responses, I mean, it's absurd. It makes everything absurd. And so one of it the does. only responses is to laugh. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I, I love this question. I, I, and I would absolutely like to think that it makes us funny. You know, I, I would like to think that that's like a wonderful, like yeah. byproduct of it. I, I'm thinking of Robin Williams, who I adored. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the funniest, funniest stand-up acts ever and obviously very haunted and yeah. dramatized and there was a darkness there from yeah. you know, from what we know um but yeah I, I i just i like the mindset of like yeah this is pretty fucked up and you know guess what we're still here and we're talking about it and you know we're able to laugh and there's um there can be joy yeah yeah there has to be right like right that's, and right. I think that's our, um, Sart wrote this play called No Exit, which is really dark and all the characters are in hell and they're triangulated so that they will torture each other forever. And the whole point is that like they're, they're, they're the creator, whatever creator they're, Sartre is an atheist, but there's no, you don't need demons because we just torture each other. <laughs> 
You know what I mean? That's like, so true. Yeah. That's true. And so, um, and at the end of this play and you're, it's very dark. And if you're really like into it, you're like, oh my God, this is terrible. You start getting a visceral reaction. Um, this is writing is really vivid. And the last thing that happens in the play is that they sort of realize their fate and they start laughing and then they come uh-huh. And it's like this very subversive, like, this is the only thing we have sometimes. Right. I can't control what's happening to me. I can't control how out of control everything is, but I can laugh at it. There's a lot of power in that. And I think like we see that with the pandemic and with this last crazy years, like all these people who became so funny. Yeah. You know, and all these little things that we, we started watching really funny, weird things and people started making funny TikToks and like really leaning into humor as coping. Yeah, you're right. What are you thinking? I just think it like it blows everything up, you know, and it changes your perspective. And, yep. um, you know, like you said, you have less control. You can't hold on to things so tightly. And it, to be able to laugh at the stuff that comes up is is life-giving from a brain perspective just to continue going back to that every minute <laughs> it's, no, it's uh, pretty good. the that's the hope circuit the tiny little joys that's humor that's all in the same thing and it can't operate at the same time as terror right so people who have that like coping mechanism of joking when things get gnarly right they're like they're flipping into that mode let's make everybody yeah. laugh Let's, let's bring levity into the situation. And I, and people who do that are very like self-deprecating about it, but I think it's actually really cool coping, you know? Yeah. Doesn't mean you're not feeling, it means you're feeling exactly right. And then you're like, and, and let's, let's ease this up a little bit, you know, or it doesn't always, yeah. I guess there's a way in which it could be a defense mechanism in a bad way, but. Okay. What's your favorite quote? Oh my God, what's yours? You have to go. I want to get it right, so I'm looking for it. Do you have yours? Um, We're probably going to say the same thing. Oh my God, wait, what is yours going to be? I have so many. I know, and they change, right? Totally. I have one tattooed on my arm. Okay. Which is from a, um, of course, <laughs> I'm such a nerd. Um, it's from a Holderlin uh, poem which was quoted in a Heidegger essay called Poetically Man Dwells, which is about this like very confusing relationship we have as human beings that are in this universe, you know? Um, And the quote is just always love the earth moves and heaven holds. And so part of what Heidegger is saying and what Holderlin is saying is that we have this tension, like we need to know what created us and where we're going and we can't. And so what can you know? right? That the, the earth moves and heaven holds. That's good. And I, when I read that, I was like, okay, I don't know about anything. I don't know about God. I don't know about where we go when we die or whatever, but I can hold on to that idea. I can sign on to that, you know? I love that. Yeah. Okay. What's yours? What you're going to know. Um, in the midst of winter, I found there was within me an invincible summer, and that makes me happy. Albert Camus. Yep. And that's something that we found um, with mom after dad died and kind of became a little bit of a mantra mm-hmm. um, for us. And it still really, really resonates and um, is hopeful. Yeah. Can I, can I finish the quote? Yeah. 
So it's for, okay. So in the midst of winter, I found there was within me an invincible summer and that makes me happy for it says that no matter how hard the world pushes against me within me, there's something stronger, something better pushing right back. And that heat brings happiness as you can win by utilizing that heat and power. Beautiful. Right? Yeah. Something pushing right back. What's your favorite Ted talk video? Um, Oh my God, I always forget this guy's name. It's it's kind of strange, but it's um, Benjamin Zander talks about the power of, um, I'm going to find the title of it, the transformative power of classical music. Oh. And I've watched it like a hundred times. I used to show it to all my classes because it's about classical music, but it's also about everything. It's about how like what it means to try our best. And I just, just go watch it. I love it. I, I won't do it justice. But it really, like, Jake sent it to me a long time ago, and it really, like, changed the way I saw the world kind of thing. I love that. Yeah. And it's and he's extremely dynamic, and it's, it's really entertaining to watch. Yeah. It's about, like, your mindset in a way, you know? Good to revisit that stuff. Yeah, totally. Okay, sorry. What, what's yours? Mine is the Brene Brown vulnerability. Yeah. TED talk that launched a thousand ships. And it just, I, I remember just being absolutely blown away by it when I listened to it. I, I need to go back and listen to it again because she is so damn likable and the message was so strong and clear and was exactly what I needed the first time I heard it. So that's by far my favorite. The power of vulnerability. I saw that like way after I had been introduced to her and her work and I was kind of bummed about it. That you wish you had seen it first? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think it's, it, I can't imagine what it would have been like to not know, I mean, before she got huge and famous to, to watch that and have that like punch of, you know, she's so dynamic and, and vulnerable, duh, you know? <laughs> okay. Last question. Okay. I'd like to hear more about the denial of trauma and how pervasive it is. It seems like it really prolongs issues and I've really struggled with it. Yes. Um... Well, I mean, there's two kinds of denial. There's the like, and they, they, they're in like a dynamic flow with each other, which is there's the denial on the societal level. And then there's the denial in within the individual mm-hmm. and they work together to create this like tension in trauma because trauma, as we talked about, when we talked about memory, the thing that trauma needs is to be brought into the light and talked about and integrated. And at the very same time, it resists that. And we act that out on a societal level, but we also have that on an individual level. Um, Does that make sense? Absolutely. There's this, and I'm really interested in this and like trying to figure out how, I'm always trying to figure out how to approach it in a way that's more, that's not like about blame, but as, you know, we, we don't want to believe that the world contains the potential horror that it does. And so we, our impulse is to reject it when we hear of it. And so when someone mm-hmm. comes forward and talks about something they've been through, that's, that's, that represents this horror that we're all vulnerable to, we reject them. And it's, and we're failing, right? Like that's, that's not okay, but it's also a natural thing, I think. And so we don't want to admit, you know, we've talked about this before on the podcast when we talked about like um, incest and things that are like, especially dark and sexual molestation of little kids. We don't want to believe that that is possible. Mm -hmm. And so we, without even thinking, we cast 
you know, aspersion onto the victim. Right. Easier to side with the perpetrator because to do so is to admit that, you know, if we're, if we're going to admit, if we're going to side with the victim, we have to admit that this stuff is possible and that's really hard. So the question is like, how prevalent is it? I mean, it is at the core of why we are still here in 2021, trying to understand what trauma is and how to deal with it. As we've seen, and I'm constantly like humbled by this, we already knew in 1800, but we have this very conflicted relationship with the existence of trauma. You know, I think I told you a couple of months ago, I got an email to my university email that was like this very well-meaning researcher who was like, Hey, all of your work is wrong because there is no such thing as psychological (laughs) trauma. There is only brain injury. And I was like, okay, made that argument in 1920 and we were wrong. So thanks. But (laughs) you know, that keeps happening. It's, it's yeah. So if you're struggling with it, it's normal. I think it's like that. We, we don't want to believe it's sort of like a, beautiful, like naive thing. You know what I mean? We don't want to believe that this stuff is possible that has happened to us. So we push it away. Right. Um, so you're normal if you've struggled with that and it's very pervasive. I think one of the most difficult and powerful things to do is to sit with someone in their pain. Totally. I think it's so hard and so like, uh, you know, we, before we started recording, I was telling Mac about the, um, the Oprah thing that's on Apple TV, where she sits down with individuals who have been traumatized and listens to their story. And I think the name of it is now I see you or some, I see you. And she's been doing things on Instagram with, you know, the person and a little bit of the story and says like, the end of it is like, I see you. And, you know, if we could all get better at, at doing that for one another and doing it for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But it's, but you're absolutely right. You know, like I, I watched the trailer last night and I, you know, I was tearing up during the trailer and I thought I can't do this tonight. Like <laughs> I can't watch an episode tonight. I have to be ready for it. And, and, you know, it's just, it's, it's human nature. It's, it's our tendency. It's, um, it's called the me you can't see. And it's on Apple TV. Thank you. The me you can't see. And, you know, it's with Prince Harry and it looks like there's really some beautiful in-depth kind of stories that are, um, that she's telling or she's listening to. And, um, I'm, I'm sure it's incredibly powerful. I'm, I'm, I'm stuck on this idea that like, maybe part of the answer of this is to stop telling ourselves that it's hard to do. You know, that it's hard to, hard to be there for someone or hard to tell your own story or. Both, it's all of it to witness someone else's pain. Cause I think like it comes out in such interesting ways. We, we like end up strengthening that belief. And then we like mm-hmm. say, which, I mean, I do this too. I'm not saying that, that, it's, that it's like, that it's just you or whatever, but like we say, like, I can't do this. Yeah. I can't take that in. I can't witness this. I mean, I think there are very real boundaries that people have and they need to know about what they are when you get into overwhelm over, you know, being flooded with other people's story. But I think we have this societal story that trauma needs to stay in the dark where it belongs. Right. And we're making it into this bigger monster than it is. If we just open the closet door, we realize it's the wizard behind the curtain and it's like, Oh dude. Okay. It's just, it's just some pain. All right. Right. We can do that. You know what I mean? Like, right. 
Right. Sit with that. We've made trauma into this mysterious evil thing. And it's like, but it's a thing that happens to all of us. So right. we can look at it differently. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, that's, that's why you're doing the work that you're doing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. Yes. That's why I exist. <laughs> Cause I think we, I see this all the time when people like argue about like, well, coaches can't talk about trauma or I can't talk about trauma unless I have a, an advanced degree. Lots of people who have advanced degrees are really bad about talking about trauma too. It has nothing to do with it. Yeah. And we can all witness a little bit of each other's pain. Like that's, you know, that's, we're built for that. Yeah. There are no answers. There's no right thing to say. Right. Well, and that's the thing I think we get caught. This is the other piece of it is that we get caught into thinking like, what do I do with this to fix it? What do I do with this to heal it? And that's why it's hard to sit in someone's pain. It's not because it's hard to do. It's because we think, I don't know what to do in it. And right. the thing to do is just to sit there and resonate. I mean, and right. think about like in your own life, how life-changing that is when someone just sits with you and says like, oh, wow. Yeah. What was that like? That must've been terrible or I picture you this way in that you know what I mean like it's an amazing gift yeah but maybe it's a skill maybe we just need to flex that muscle yeah Yeah. so well those were some great questions those were great questions thank you guys that was fun we can do that again if you guys want just let us know um, next week, we're back with a regular letter. Um, so keep writing to us at the trauma tapes at gmail.com and we will feature your letter. I can't think of anything else. Is there, oh, we need do to you have a tiny little joy. Yeah, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay. What's yours? Mine is that I belong to this um, Facebook group uh, uh, that um, is about English Springer Spaniels, which is what Sadie is because <laughs> I'm like a crazy dog mom at this, this point in my question. life. I don't even know this. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really like fascinating because you think your dog is like a giant weirdo. And then you realize that like all Springer Spaniels kind of have like the same behavior. So it makes you feel better, but a little less special. Um, and there's this one guy who keeps posting and he is just adorable. And he, um, he recently got a Springer and he has made a couple, I know nothing about this guy. I don't know where he lives. I, I, you know, I'm not, done any research, nor do I want to, but he's made a couple comments that this dog has saved his life. And, um, he is so joyful and is so, the posts are so happy and so loving. And like the, <laughs> the one last night was he bought her like a pink terry cloth robe <laughs> and embroidered her name on it. And, <laughs> and you know, the comments to him are so, uh, welcoming and loving. And it's, it's just obvious that, that, that this dog and this experience has changed his life. And he is just shouting from the rooftops and uh, putting it out there on Facebook. And I, I get so happy when I see one of his posts that, that, that he is now in this wonderful place. Oh, I love that. And he's a complete stranger, but it like, I just get a huge kick out of it. I love that. I want it. The dog's name is Shelby. <laughs> The pink turd. Now is Sadie want one? Well, Sadie's going to have one now. <laughs> Sadie can't not have a pink terry cloth robe. Come on. Sadie already, Sadie already ordered hers. <laughs> and it's monogrammed. <laughs> right. But it's just, it's really cute. Like the joy that he has and the way he's just putting it out there in the world. It oh, just, it feels that. great to be a witness to that. I love that. I have to send it, send me 
I don't know if you can because I'm not. A, I don't own one. I want to see him. Want to see his Well, dog. you're an aunt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have to get a dog. Is the thing that's the answer. Yeah, you will. <laughs> that's a great one. I love that. Dogs transform they're, our lives. They're we don't deserve them. <laughs> they really, they really do. Very like pure. Okay, I have a funny one. Um, mine oh. is this thing. What the hell is that? <laughs> I've been having this muscle soreness and I have this trouble in my Achilles because I, my stress response is to tromp all over hell, (laughs) walk lots of miles a week. And um, so I've been having trouble with my like calf muscles and my Achilles gets snappy because of that. And so this is a massage glove. Oh, and it has the, it's just like a rubber thing and it has these balls on it that like move. You're going to have to have a picture of that because that looks like medieval. I feel like it looks like a Muppet thing, (laughs) but you just like roll it on your calf or your muscle that hurts and it just massages. That's it. Oh, fun. And it's not like a, it doesn't have like a, it's not one of those Theragun, like massage, like, you know, scary things. It's just like the thing you put on your hand and then you can massage your legs or whatever. And it is the best. Yeah. The best. That's really tiny, but it's helpful. Now it's good. That's what it's all about. Yep. So we'll put a picture of that because it looks really weird, but highly recommend if you're having muscle soreness or pain. Um, it's a good, it's a good tool. <laughs> okay. Now I'm going to go look up flowers in the attic and fall down. Don't, don't promise me you won't read the book. <laughs> Mom said, no, 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 you can't. She was so attuned to like evil. Yeah. Like and worry yes. that if we were going to engage in any of that, that like we, you know, if you, if you had a Ouija board at a party, you were supposed to leave. <laughs> yeah. No, I respect that now. I'm glad she was like that. Like, don't fuck with that stuff. You don't know. You can't, if you open a portal, you can't shut it again. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. All right. Thank you. Thank you. I'll see you next time. Thanks guys for listening. Okay. Bye.